0: we're jumping into part two of helping you build an internal operating system. We started this series last week, and a bunch of people reached out and asked where we're headed, what the outcome of this three-episode arc is going to be. The answer is an actual system you'll be able to use to apply to your startup. There will be a Notion template and everything, assuming the little man doesn't dislocate his elbow again. More on that later. We're going to help you figure out what you should be working on and create a system that makes it impossible for you to not prioritize the uncomfortable stuff. A business is just the culmination of all the little systems you create. And the most important early system to build is the one that helps you decide what to work on. And as I just said, forces you to prioritize the uncomfortable stuff. That is going to be the difference. Without a system, you'll just float around aimlessly with no direction, like the plot of failure to launch. Yeah, I watched it. And boo. This is one of the harder things for new entrepreneurs to grasp because it's unlikely you've ever built your own system from scratch before. You've been a cog in other people's systems, but as my dad says, that along with $2.50 will get you on the subway. And actually, those other systems will probably do you harm because the type of system and incentives you'd build to produce reactive work, basically everything anyone with a job does, is the exact opposite of the type of system and incentive structure you build for proactive work, what startups need to do. This series of episodes is meant to help you get started on your system, to make it easy. It won't be done at the end, your system will be a living, breathing, evolving thing as you grow, but you'll get started. I think of startup systems like cities, and the one we want to build is much more New York City than Charlotte. I grew up near New York City, and I lived there for a long time, and I always loved how organic and useful it is. Since every inch is in demand, every inch has been considered. What is the best use of this space? Lots of my friends from UNC live in Charlotte, and when I visit them, I always think the opposite. It feels like a city that was planned and built ahead of time before anyone really knew how it would be used. There are big sidewalks and uniform plots and a stale mix of commercial and residential and a Starbucks for every 5,231 people or whatever. It was built in a conference room by people theorizing what some future city goer might want. New York City was shaped in real time by actual demand. And that is how we're going to build our system. As needed to support your growth. Organic. Flexible, not over-engineered, but useful, never theoretical. And with that, let's talk about monkeys and Shakespeare. My old boss used to talk about monkeys and Shakespeare all the time, and not in the infinite monkey theorem way. If you're not familiar, that's the idea that if you give an infinite number of monkeys at keyboards an infinite amount of time, one of them would eventually stumble into Hamlet. He somehow had a different monkey Shakespeare anecdote that I always assumed he made up, but a Google search tells me he probably didn't. Anyway, after most startups we met with had pitched, he'd asked to see their priority list or their to-do list or calendar or whatever was most reflective of their current operational goals. What had they achieved last week and what did they want to achieve this week? The founders would always reply that they were data-driven and then they'd go into their OKRs or KPIs or whatever customer-facing stuff they were up to, but he'd stop them and tell them to zoom out. What do you need to learn or prove or validate? What is most important and how did the actions you took last week reflect that? Most of the time, startups had a really poor answer to this. Actually, it wasn't poor, it was just disjointed. The biggest thing might be figuring out if they could acquire customers at a certain cost, but last month they'd spent a ton of time planning for a conference and fundraising. After hearing the startup's hierarchy of important things and work habits, he'd almost always say the same thing. Quote, you're spending way too much time building the pedestal. The founder would nod confused, wondering if they were supposed to know what that meant. Then my boss would launch into his shtick. Let's say I told you that in two months you needed to get a monkey to recite Hamlet on top of a pedestal, he'd say. How much time would you spend on the pedestal? You'd always take a second to realize this wasn't a rhetorical question. Then the founder would stutter something like, Well, we wouldn't spend any time on the pedestal. We'd spend it all on the monkey. I see, my boss would respond. Then he'd sit quietly. Oh, so you're saying we're spending too much time on, the founder would blurt out and then name the thing that wasn't actually the thing. Yes, my boss would shout. We know you can build a pedestal. That is not the hard part. This whole business depends on whether or not you can teach a monkey to talk, which in your case is, and then he'd say their biggest risk acquisition at a certain cost or whatever. Spend all of your time on that. What would your weeks look like if that was the only thing you cared about? Then they'd hash it out. Tons of founders I meet end up spending all their time on pedestals for a lot of reasons, but the biggest one in my mind is that they haven't built a clear operating system. Or more accurately, they work the same way they did when they had a day job, where there were never actually any monkeys. Most businesses started at some point by teaching a monkey to recite Hamlet. Then they hired a bunch of people to build pedestals for that monkey to stand on. The jobs of 99.9% of future employees are around the logistics of the pedestals, how you can get this talking monkey in front of more people, cheaper and faster. How can you get adjacent markets interested in the monkey? How can you modularize the service, build a stronger brand around it, upsell? Which is all really useful stuff and can be extremely hard and create a ton of value and often requires a lot of skill, but someone already taught the monkey Shakespeare. That was the uncharitable thing. We've got processes for the rest. All of these monkey analogies are to say that you've almost certainly spent your life building pedestals, not teaching monkeys. And the way you work for the second is very different than the way you work for the first. We need to help you build a system to teach monkeys how to recite Shakespeare. And I'll tell you what, I am just unbelievably tempted to make that sentence the tagline of our show. Idea to startup. We'll help you teach monkeys how to recite Shakespeare. Anyway. One of the biggest parts of this is just recognizing it, that at any given moment, you're working on pedestals or on monkeys, and every second you're working on pedestals is a waste. There are four pillars we'll go through today. You'll be able to implement them immediately, and remember, we're building New York City, not Charlotte. We're gonna try to keep the theoretical structuring, stuff like creating KPIs and OKRs for theoretical things we haven't done yet, to a minimum. And to start, we need to understand how you identify the monkey tasks. We'll help you do that after a little smooth jazz, which I forgot to include last week somehow. Yikes. Sorry about that. Can't imagine how hard it was. Here is some extra smooth jazz to make up for it. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job and want to test out the former before you leave the latter, come and work with us. Apply at GetTackleBox.com. Over 400 startups have tested and built ideas to our program, and those businesses are now collectively worth over a billion dollars. Our program helps you prioritize and execute, and our members and me and the team keep you accountable and give you feedback along the way. Come build with us at gettacklebox.com. Back to it. Reverse engineering your system. The first counterintuitive part of your startup system is how you set the whole thing up. When you're given a project at work, you'll start with a giant list of all the things you have to do, then you'll bucket them somehow and you'll get started. This works because you know what the outcome needs to be. If I say, hey, I need you to try and sell our product to this new potential customer, there's a clear path. Known paths are easy to follow. Startup paths are unknown. We don't really know what actions it'll take to get there. If we did, someone would have already done it. There are no $20 bills on the sidewalk. So we can't plan forward, but we can plan in reverse. A great way to start your project is to zoom into the future a year or two, and think of the characteristics of a successful business, then work backwards to try and get to those things. Here is an example, because these things always work better with examples. Let's pretend you're that doughy-eyed entrepreneur from last week, the one with the idea for a country club with a golf course for people who live in New York city, you remember it, a bunch of people reached out about it intrigued. If you don't, the long and short of it is that if you live in New York City, you can't join a country club with a golf course because they're far away and there are obviously none in the city. But what if there was a country club in the city? And instead of a 120-acre golf course, they had a handful of 120-square-foot rooms with golf simulators in them. Golf simulator tech has come a long way. So you join and pay dues and go to events and get short sleeve collared shirts with the logos on them and be around a bunch of tall blonde people named Blaine and do all the country club with the golf course things, except without the course. Now, put yourself in this entrepreneur's shoes like we did last week. It's Monday morning. You woke up at 5.30 a.m. to get an hour and a half of work in before your day job. What do you do? The answer for most people is to work on the pedestal to do some cursory research or to reach out to a lawyer or start building a pitch deck for investors because you're gonna have to raise money at some point if you're gonna have a space in the city with golf simulators, right? You need to know how much the thing is gonna cost so that you can build a financial plan. Those are pedestals, all of them, even fundraising, especially fundraising. Fundraising is a side effect of some very good monkey work. It in itself is not monkey work. This is a classic excuse. We'll have to do this someday, so we might as well do it now. But that's not true. If you can't get the monkey to recite Hamlet, you certainly don't need to bother with the pedestal. So where's the monkey? What would you do? If you're a listener of the pod, you might have recognized this as a grade A whisper idea, a solution in search of a problem. We don't know that people in New York City have a problem around golf clubs or that they wish that they could join one in the city or even that golf clubs are about golf. We don't know the job to be done and we don't know the customer. So that is where we've got to start. The place nearly every startup needs to start. Does anyone care enough about this problem to try something new? Back to the reverse engineering idea. A successful first stage of a startup is fairly straightforward. I always think there are four things a startup needs to accomplish to get enough momentum to break through and get to the next stage. So let's start with those, then build our system to support them, ensuring that we're focused on monkeys and not pedestals. Here they are. First, a customer with a problem that's painful, frequent, urgent, expensive, or growing, or some combination of those. Someone in a hole who will overpay for you to get them out. Someone committed to getting out of that hole, someone too far in it to turn back, someone willing to try something new. This may sound obvious, but it's rare, and the second characteristic will expand on this customer a bit. Second, you need to have the potential to create a Delta IV status level jump for that customer. If you've never heard of this framework, it was coined by Kunal Shah, and basically the idea is that for a person to change their behavior and try your product, you need to promise and eventually deliver something plus four better than the current solution on a one to 10 scale. Meaning if the current solution is a two out of 10 for your customer and you can promise a six out of 10 experience, they're going to be interested. If the current solution is a five out of 10 and you promise a seven out of 10, they won't. There are two huge points here. First, customers won't change their behavior for marginal improvements. Behavior change is gonna cost you as the entrepreneur a lot more than that. And second, if something is a six out of 10, meaning it's fine, it's good enough, you are not gonna get people to change their behavior. There's not enough room. That is why Excel is still around, it's good enough. And if the solution is a four or a five out of 10, you need to promise an eight or a nine out of 10, a pretty polished product. The easier way is to find a scenario where a customer has a problem and the way they solve it is terrible. We're looking for ones and twos and threes. Stay away from four, five, and six. The good news is that if you create a Delta IV improvement, customers are going to be really excited and they're going to tell their friends and you're going to grow. This obviously relates back to point one. First, you need a customer with a problem and a terrible current solution to it. Third, you need a secret about that customer, because that whole markets are efficient thing. That secret is usually in one of three categories. First, a segment secret, that this customer segment exists at all, you've noticed them, but others can't or won't. Second, a channel secret, you can find the customer in a way that others can't or don't. Or third, a product secret, something you can build that other people can't or won't for some reason. Finally, you need a wedge. An early problem with a quick feedback loop you can solve for them that'll build trust and kickstart that organic growth. Those are the big four. And as I say them, I realize how overwhelming they can feel. It's not obvious how to find them or even clear what exactly you're looking for. Which, again, is why most people spend time on pedestals. The work is just more straightforward. Getting a lawyer has steps we understand. Finding a customer in a hole does not. But once you recognize monkey tasks and pedestal tasks, which I wasn't planning on using as terminology, but I actually love and will probably use from here on out, you can at least recognize what you should be working towards, what you'll need for a business to work. Another way to think of this is in terms of problems and opportunities. Most of your life is set up to solve problems, to be reactive, to get an email and respond to it. Lots of people who are very good at their job and make lots of money, spend 90% of their time solving problems. Founders on the other hand, need to chase opportunities. You'll never get asymmetric results by spending your time solving problems. You need to spend 90% of your time chasing things that'll help you be unique things with lots of upside. And that's what to take from the reverse engineering exercise. If those are the characteristics you need for a startup to get some traction, your core job as an entrepreneur is to search and to choose, to search for customers in a whole, to learn something about them other people don't know, then to choose to lean into solving it for them, at least until you get data that says you should stop. So if you're starting that golf country club idea, that is where you begin. You speak with tons of potential customers who might have the, I want a country club problem. We speak with people who join country clubs in Westchester and people who play golf every weekend. You learn what the real job of a club is. Is it being chosen to belong? Is it meeting people? Is it golf? You figure out customers that don't have any other options for some reason. Customers that have cruised down the river and have hit a dam and you can help them get through it. And then you choose. A specific customer in a specific hole that's tried a specific set of things to get out and is currently still digging like hell. It is a search, a quest for a customer that's dramatically underserved, a problem that really, really matters, not one that's opportunistic, not one with competitors, one where you're alone, at least for the customer, one where you've got a secret. Searching is hard and you probably haven't done it before. So we've got to set up a system for you to make it easy. Optimize for inertia. Searching is uncomfortable because searching doesn't have boundaries. You don't know how long it should take or sometimes what you're even looking for early on. And the key is context, which takes a lot of time. You need to speak with a lot of customers before you have a good sense as to what a good customer looks like. This is where you need to think of entrepreneurship as architecture, not interior design. The structuring of the work is critical, as is the pacing and the sequencing. The important part about your system is thinking through how humans are, how we think and act and being realistic about it, and specifically about how you think and you act. Our systems need to match our behaviors and steer them towards what a great founder would do. There are five examples we'll go through quickly today. Then next week, we'll start coalescing all this into a system. But you can start with these now. They'll work. First, the overarching theme. Optimize your system for inertia. The whole game for startups is inertia. Not necessarily inertia with customers, but your inertia as a founder, what you do each day. Since you know that only the uncomfortable stuff will get you where you want to be in the end, you've got to optimize for that. And the first important thing is knowing why even when we know something is good for us, we avoid it. Then building a system to combat that. If your system leads you to doing 20% more uncomfortable things than competitors each day, and you repeat that day over and over for a year, you're going to end up with a super successful business on the other side. It's that simple. And the uncomfortable thing is interesting because humans misunderstand comfort. We used to avoid discomfort as a means of survival. Now that survival isn't on the line, and the only way to get anywhere interesting is through discomfort, we need to rewire things a bit. There is a book I love and have mentioned before called 101 Essays That Will Change the Way You Think by Brianna Wiest, which I cannot recommend enough. I'll put it in the show notes. In one essay, she writes, quote, moving yourself past resistance is a matter of shifting your perception of comfort. It's about considering the alternative. It's altering your mindset to focus on the discomfort you will face if you don't do the thing in front of you, as opposed to the discomfort you will face if you do. Jerry Seinfeld has a similar quote that goes, quote, if you break the human struggle down to one word, it is confront. And so I approach everything that way. Confront. Some people call things like these affirmations. Another founder I work with repeated something about doing uncomfortable work each morning in the mirror. I don't really care what your tactics are, but your actions need to reflect this mindset. Every time you sit down to work, you should start by thinking about these ideas. Focus on the discomfort you're going to feel down the road if you don't work on the monkey stuff today. One founder always talked about their coffee cup, basically their threshold for doing the uncomfortable things. They said they had an hour a day where they could really lean into the hard stuff and then they were maxed out. So they did that hour first. Don't ever waste your time or your capacity for uncomfortable work building a pedestal. The next part of inertia is what a founder called the thousand votes each day. Every day, he said, every action you take is a vote for who you are. Lots of times you don't realize these votes. They're subconscious. You pick up your phone and you go to Instagram and that's a subconscious vote for what is important in your life. If you check how many likes you get on a post 10 times in an hour, those are 10 votes towards that being the focus of your life. Your subconscious will start to bend towards that. Those votes matter and they compound. Convenience is expensive. Alternatively, swapping those votes with positive actions does the same. Your actions change your mind. So this founder always had a list of sub two, sub five, and sub 30 minute tasks that would reinforce who he wanted to be. Actions that became votes for the type of founder he wanted to become. As you go through your day, you get these pockets of time in the subway waiting at the dentist's in line at Starbucks. These are opportunities for votes. For example, if he had under two minutes, he had a list of articles he wanted to read. Sub five minutes, he'd read five pages on the Kindle app and track those and add them up. He usually ended up with 30 to 40 pages read each day. Sub 30 minutes was an opportunity for emails he was always working on to people who could have disproportionate impact on his business. There were other sub 30 minute tasks too: come up with 10 customer acquisition ideas or send direct messages to customers for potential interviews and on and on votes for who you wanted to be anchored by these two, five and 30 minute lists. As he went through his day, he'd recognize other opportunities and add them to the two, five and 30 minute lists. Another part of inertia is realizing where most people's momentum stops and ensuring yours doesn't. I call this the last 15%. I forget if I talked about this on the podcast, but a few years back, my wife and I went to Iceland. Our goal was to hike all the way around the country. There's a loop most tourists follow that hits waterfalls, black sand beaches, glaciers, volcanic fields, and this wild moss that makes you feel like you're on another planet. We rented a car and we did it. Highly recommend. At our very first stop, we jumped out and were a bit discouraged. The waterfall was amazing, but it was swarmed with people and cars and tour buses. Luckily, one of our guidebooks had predicted this. Every stop will be packed, it said, but every stop also has a trail. Find the trail, and it'll bring you to another waterfall or a beach or a volcanic field a mile or two away. So, we did. After about 250 yards on the hike at our first waterfall, the crowd went from maybe a 1,000 people to less than a dozen. A mile into the hike, we were completely alone, looking at a waterfall objectively more beautiful than the one next to the road. This happened at every stop. We didn't even bother looking at the main attraction by the end. The tourists blew me away. Iceland is a six-hour flight from everywhere. Basically, everyone there had planned this trip, flown across the ocean, rented a car, drove to the site, and then stopped. All they had to do was walk for 20 more minutes, and they would get the ultimate prize, but they stopped. Entrepreneurs are pros at this, at getting 85% of the way to something interesting. You spend a week on a video, then just post it to your social media and forget about it. You spend two hours crafting the perfect cold email, then send it to 20 people and never follow up. There are two ways to fix this. First is scripting the beginning and the end. The beginning and end of anything, a sales call, a customer interview, an email, a podcast are hard and are usually the parts that define whatever you're doing. So always script them. Do not leave them a chance. If you're creating a video to post to YouTube and social media to test something, write out the script of how you start working on it and the script of how you'll get maximum value from it at the end. What would give it a chance to at 10x the growth? How could you amplify it? The script should be written out. I'll reach out to these people, I'll pass it through these channels, I'll organize my friends so they post and boost it at the same time, I'll test these paid channels, and on and on and on. As always, a good prompt for something like this is, what would somebody 15% more assertive than me do? The second approach is to just outsource this, to realize when your inertia cup is empty and find someone to finish the job. Maybe it's paying $25 on Fiverr for someone to get your list of cold emails from 20 to 500. The last part of inertia is feedback loops. This wades into the actual structural pond a bit, which we'll focus on next week, how to set up projects and tasks and all that. But being cognizant of feedback loops is important during these early stages. Here is an example. If you've decided that you want to speak with 20 country club managers at places surrounding New York City to understand more about what that customer is looking for, the feedback loops are going to be pretty long. If you don't have warm intros and cold calls don't work, your cold emails or cold LinkedIn messages might take a week to get a response, then another week to land on a meeting time, and that meeting time might be another week out. So three to four weeks of waiting. First, try to speed up that feedback loop. But If you can't, stack all the long feedback loop tasks early. Do them immediately. Reach out to all 20 as fast as you possibly can to get that cycle going. Also, you should balance those out with tasks with shorter feedback loops. We talked last week about how starting a business can feel like you were supposed to read 300 pages of a book and you didn't and you're on page six and it's all just really overwhelming. To throw another book analogy at you, your startup structure should be like the Da Vinci Code. Short chapters, fast feedback loops, feels like there's motion, always feels like you're making progress. Balance out the long feedback loops with shorter ones. Find an event where you can show up and talk to five country club managers immediately. Cold call them, show up in person, shake up the feedback loops to get information faster. Big, overwhelming things like searching for a customer can always be broken down into smaller tasks with quicker feedback loops. Notice what keeps you moving and optimize for it. Reflection. Next week, we'll talk about the reflection side of your system, which is absolutely critical. It'll balance out the projects and the inertia and all that good stuff. But this week, we'll end with a little life reflection. This past Saturday, my son got nursemaid's elbow. Basically, we pulled on his arm a bit too hard when we were putting on a cute sweater for his grandfather, and his elbow just sort of popped out. Some kids are susceptible to it. Anyway, he didn't really react in the moment, but wouldn't stop crying on our walk. And eventually we realized that he wasn't moving his right arm at all. We panicked. I texted one of my best friends who's a doctor and my wife started frantically Googling and we realized it was probably this pretty common thing. A trip to the doctor ended in less than 30 seconds of popping the elbow back in place and the little guy was as good as new. That night, we went to dinner and we sat at a table across from a one-year-old and they babbled at each other all night long. The little guy smiled and made popping sounds with his mouth and waved his arms and threw his favorite toy, Mr. Giraffe, on the ground over and over, cackling when his new friend did the same with his stuffed bear. When we got home, we decided it had probably been the happiest night of his life. The point of this whole system is so that you don't waste your time. Startups are hard, sure, but so much effort is spent building pedestals. Systems to remove that can get you to a thing that really matters faster. A thing people will pay for. A thing that can support you and give you time rather than take it. A thing that can help people solve hard problems. A thing that still gives you time to do other things. Because Mr. Giraffe isn't going to pick himself up off the ground, This was the idea to start a podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you've got a startup idea in a full time, oop, wait, forgot our new tagline. This is the idea to start a podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We will help you teach a monkey how to recite Hamlet. Apply at gettacklebox.com and we'll get back to you in 72 hours. Have a great week.